Hello, hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the We All Serve podcast, episode number 19. We've got a great conversation in store for you. But first, I'd like to say welcome and good afternoon to my friend and co-host, Angel Torres. Angel, welcome back. Great to be back. This is number two. We got a streak going now. Woohoo! It's true. You're stuck with me and I'm stuck with you, I guess. Hey. The tension before the Army-Navy game has been palatable. <laughs> oh, I hear, it's at, uh, I hear it's at West Point this year, and uh, that means we've got the, uh, the home field advantage, I guess. Yes, yes. We'll be showing up in our dog face masks. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you, you, you and I talked about the mask situation uh, mm-hmm. the other day. Did you uh, come? Did you end up going like on Amazon and trying to one up your buddy Scott to uh, to show up with a better mask than him next time? No, he showed up with the the Bane mask, and uh, he's an Army Ranger. And I showed up. He wanted me to show up with a Joker mask, and he just refinished uh, or refurbished a 1967 Range Rover, and he wanted to drive around downtown Chicago as with me as the Joker and him as Bane. We thought it'd be kind of funny, but it was cold out, and I decided to go drinking instead. Good plan. Good plan. Absolutely good plan. So uh, how was your weekend? Anything exciting going on in the world of uh, Angel Tours and uh, whatever you Navy veterans do? No, just met up with a couple of uh, college classmates. And as it turned out, one of my classmates from business school it went to her undergrad at, at Brown. She uh, she went to school with uh, this this young man who I found out knows my, my cousin, my cousin Boomer. And I He's, I was like, he said he went to Lincoln Way High School. I was like, oh, do you know Boomer Igaro? He was like, that's my best friend from baseball. And I, and I was like, yeah, that's my first cousin. So it was kind of a fun weekend. We had a good time. This is a small world, man. It's just such a small world. And if, if you're cool with everybody and everybody knows you as a good guy, then things go real well. <laughs> Otherwise, eh, not so much. Yeah, well, good times. Good. Um, well, it's uh, I know we recorded the last one just a couple of days ago. And uh and for those of you that are tuning in on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, all that good stuff, welcome. Um, we also publish these podcasts um, on pretty much every app and every platform that there is. Um, so wherever you're finding this, click subscribe, rate, review. It makes it easier for people to find these conversations. We've got some and really share. good conversations in store. And share. Yeah. We've got some really good conversations in store. Um, some really, really good conversations. Angel's getting mad at me because I'm booking these things, you know, left and right. But I get inspired. You know, we've we've got some awesome people um, that are contacting us. Um, some leaders, um, veterans, amazing, amazing people making a difference in the community. Awesome feedback from our last conversation. Um, Rod Levy from uh, Code Platoon. That was an awesome conversation. I know some people yeah, reached out to them. So good stuff. So super uh, impactful, though, Shalom. I mean, the level of and caliber of people that are coming on your podcast and reaching out—it's gonna. I, I think the good measure of of how effective and how um, impactful this podcast is the people that we're out we're able to reach and connect and provide information and a and this platform just serves to do all those things and connect with people. So. I'm really excited about it and what's coming up. Hey, absolutely. But you just said, um, you just used a, uh, a word um, that's one of my pet peeves. You just said your. I always hate when people say your or their. Um, this this. Is- How about this? <laughs> this platform? This platform. That works. No, we're in this together, man. And uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure and an honor to have you. Um, and uh, it's a good time. So today, unfortunately, my friend, you are uh, outgunned and outnumbered because I, I got a army that um, 
joining us for the conversation. Are, are you ready for me to, uh, to, to bring her on the screen? At that point, you will be absolutely outnumbered. It's a normal. My last job was uh, I was working for the adjutant of the Army before I retired. And I think that kind of drove the decision to retire. <laughs> that working with you would probably do that. I, right? I, 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 get, I get it. Let's well, bring Ruthie in. Yeah, without any further ado, there she is. <laughs> Ruthie Bowles is here. And Ruthie is the radically authentic authority marketing consultant. She helps experts become business influencers who can incite real change, whether through their own content or guest content. She helps her clients create authentic and valuable video and written content. This sort of content that connects them with their ideal clients. This the sort of content that continues to delight their current clients and turns them into brand evangelists. This sort of content that, cre that brings in new clients just dying to work with them. Ruthie has three sons, one daughter, plus a few goats and a flock of ducks and chickens. She met her husband while they were both serving in Afghanistan. After eight and a half years of army service, she became a federal contractor and then an entrepreneur. Ruthie, welcome to We All Serve. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you, and it's it's always fun when I could have uh, another uh, army vet uh, join <laughs> and uh, and and gang up on uh, Angel over here. So, <laughs> good. Maybe we could drive him to run away. That would be like the real success of this That's podcast. A win. That's a win for all all parties assigned. <laughs> <laughs> So Ruthie, welcome. It's great to have you. Um, first of all, uh, how are you and your family coping in this strange period that is our new normal? Uh, well, it's certainly been interesting. So I have four children. Two of them are at a small daycare down the road. They're my youngest kids, but I've got two kids in virtual school. Wow. Wow. Like if tech can go wrong, it will go wrong during virtual school for sure. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, that's been interesting. My husband was home for like six months and I mean, that was, I was grateful that he was still getting paid, but, uh, wow. Six months of just everybody like in my face, like I work from home. So people aren't in my face and that is what happened. I was a bad student. And I'll tell you what, when I think about being a kid and having COVID, I was like, man, it's going to be awesome. No, we're at home, so there's no bullying, and and I, if I can just blame stuff on the internet going down, that's cool, and I can get away with a whole bunch of stuff. Man, I'm never doing my homework ever. You know, I my wife and I were just saying that that I would probably be horrible. We would both be horrible students in uh, if if we were like in school right now. Um, yeah, this 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 whole period would not go well. Um, so I I'm in awe and a little bit worried about the uh, future of this generation COVID um, that's uh, that's coming through. And uh, yeah, more power to uh, to you as a uh, as a mom of four for dealing with uh, technical difficulties and all the other things that come along with uh, this world of COVID. I think all they have to do to raise taxes is go to Ruthie and say, Ruthie, we need you to champion uh, tax higher taxes for teachers. And she'll be like, yes, yes, pay them lots. Take my damn kids. Yes, do that. <laughs> yeah, for real. Like, I t uh, oh my goodness. Like, I am all about teachers. Like, if you ask the people right now, like I told my husband, I told my husband already, I was like, hey, it was about halfway through, right? So about three months and I'm like, 
I think the new measure of how many children you should have, like the standard should be okay if you can spend months with them at a time in your house and not really going anywhere. And then I looked at him and I said, I might sound horrible for saying this, but I think we had too many kids for quarantine. And he agreed. So I guess maybe he's horrible for agreeing. But I was like, yeah, we have too many kids nah. for this. Uh, yeah. That's real. Ruthie, <laughs> <laughs> as uh, to quote Julie Andrews in uh, in Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning, um, and uh, and let's get you know let's let's start with where are you from, and uh, and how did you end up uh, getting to the uh, to to a recruiter's office to join uh, the United States Army? So I'm actually from California. But I was born in San Diego because both of my grandfathers were in the Navy. That is how my parents met. They were stationed um, in San Diego. Yeah. And, the rollerblade um, spin. I have rollerblades <laughs> on the bottom of my chair. Very exciting. And we moved to Pennsylvania where my dad's dad is from when I was about 13. And I actually joined the Army from there. Um, my high school was just doing ASVABs, I guess. And they were like, well, if you've been preparing for the SAT, you might as well just take the ASVAB. I had absolutely no intentions of joining the military. I was planning on going to college. I, you know, had gotten a couple of scholarships. I was going to go to college. Um, but I scored really well on the ASVAB. I did not end up at a recruiter's office. They ended up at my house, all of them. <laughs> at my house and um, the Marines and the Navy. I told them no, because at the time I had, so my hair is pretty long now, but my hair was down to my hips when I was in high school. And they were like, yeah, we're gonna have to cut your hair though. And I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean like cut it? They're like, yeah, it's like here, but just one time I was like, nope, bye. Bye Felicia, like don't come back. Like I'm not cutting my hair. Wow. And then I have one older brother and he was already in the Air Force. So the Air Force recruiter, I was like, well, I don't want to join the Air Force because my big brother already did it. And mm, yeah. I don't want to do that. And so then I joined the Army. Like it was complete. Like that was my process of elimination. And thinking back, I, I like I don't think I put enough thought into that, maybe. <laughs> but I can't so say that go, I regret All good choices choice went to the wayside and the Army was left. OK, got it. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> And so, yeah, and so that's how I joined. I was going to do uh, cultural studies in college. I hadn't yet picked the language, oh, wow. but I was going to do cultural studies um, because I, I already knew that I loved language and culture. I wanted to travel, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, joke was on me. But the Army was like, well, we have we have positions for that. Well, we'll send you to the language school and everything. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. They tried to bait and switch me at the end because, or towards the end. And they were like, well, uh, you're going to be competing against people who have gone through college and stuff. So it might be better if you sign up to uh, build helicopters. And I'm like, I don't care what the ASVAB told that's you. just like languages. Yeah, I was like, I don't care what the ASVAB <laughs> told you. Like, I don't care how high that score was. I do not want to build helicopters. Now, they might have got me if I could fly the helicopters, but I don't want to build helicopters. They got so, me, Ruthie. <laughs> they got me. So I told them, and so they were like, well, you're going to be competing with these college college graduates, so, you know, good luck. I'm like, okay, well, I think you guys forgot that I had scholarships to college, and I didn't tell them that I wasn't coming yet, so I'll just go do that. And then, like a week later, they're like, "We got a language spot for you." I was like, it's "Yeah, amazing. I bet you did." <laughs> yeah, I was like, you, now, now you're actually just outside of Annapolis. So, I mean, yeah. hey, you pretty much live 
the uh, you hang out around Navy people. So I, I admire you already. And we haven't even gotten into all of your accomplishments. The fact that you can sort of coexist in that environment. It's very impressive. It's like going home and you hear her dad and mom and stuff was already there, or grandfather and her grad. It's like going home. I, I guess that was already like your boot camp. I guess you survived that, you can survive any. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but yeah, so, you know, I went through basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And then um, once that was done, you know, they send us to the language school once you're done with basic training and everybody's talking about the language and stuff that they got. And I was like, how do you guys know? And they're like, it's on your orders. I'm like, it is? They're like, yeah, I look for the language code. It's it's two letters, right? Because we didn't know the fancy word, digraph yet. Okay. And so I look at my orders and they're like, yeah, it's right there. And I'm like, PF, what is that? And they're like, Persian Farsi. I'm like, Persian? Like 300? I thought that was a dead language. And they're like, no, it's between Iraq and Afghanistan. Iran, <laughs> <laughs> right. They're like, they speak it in Iran. And I was like, oh, like, because, because at the time, right. So 300 came out in like 2006. And at the yeah. time too, especially like, like Afghanistan and Iraq were, were all in the news. I, I completely was not even aware that there was a whole country with millions of people in it, in between those two countries. So I'm like, okay, Persian Farsi, got it. And I shared that like serious moment of like geographical and like cultural ignorance just to highlight like by the time I was like maybe a third of the way through my language training I love this language and I love the culture and our teachers kept bringing in food so I could tell you that I love the food and it was fantastic and I ended up like falling in love with it and yeah so Persian Farsi was my trade if you will and then we you know we go on for technical training for about six months at least at the time it was six months i think they shortened it to four by the time i went back to that school as a trainer um and then yeah so my first duty station i was part of the 101st airborne i was in third brigade the rakasans and that was when i deployed to afghanistan and that is where i met my now husband who uh funny enough the first thing that i did was mispronounce this man's name First thing that I did. And he outranked me <laughs> uh, by one. He was a sergeant and I was a specialist. I was an E4 and he was an E5. And I hit him with a door as he was coming in and I was leaving. Like I had just showed up. I had just showed up into Afghanistan. We just got into our office and I hit him with the door on the way out. And I was like, oh, sorry, Sergeant Bowles. And he was like, it's Bowles. And he just grumbles in and goes into the office. I probably mispronounced uh, your name earlier. So I apologize. <laughs> It's okay. Everybody does it. Everybody does it, including the marriage certificate woman who misspelled it three times, even with us spelling it out phonetically letter by letter. She misspelled it three times. So, yeah. So, and that's, that's how we met. We were, I was in Afghanistan for 12 months. He was stationed in Colorado. I was, you know, and then I was originally stationed in Kentucky. I ended up PCS in Georgia where I got to be on a joint service base, worked with, you know, airmen, Marines. Yes. Fort Gordon and sailors. And so that was my joint service base there. And that was awesome. Got to use my language and I got promoted to staff sergeant there by the time I was at about four and a half years in. And then I ended up back at Goodfellow Air Force Base to be a trainer. And that is actually where I got out of the army. I was planning on retiring, um, but my husband was going to go get 
a job in Maryland. So we, I was going to have our two kids and he was going to be in Maryland. And exactly seven days, one week before he left, I found out I was pregnant with our third child. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do this by myself you know, training base and then having a newborn can't do that. So that's how we ended up in Maryland actually is I, once I got out, we ended up in Maryland. Then I became a federal contractor. They said no options for promotion because of the way we were set up in these like little language groups. Yeah. And so I was like, Oh, this is not going to work. And then I ended up, you know, I was consulting part-time for marketing of all things, which I had no experience in. Um, but <laughs> Like any other service member or veteran you might figure be it out. You figure it out. Like you just make <laughs> it happen, right? And then that's what happened. And then uh once I was pregnant with my fourth child on my maternity leave, I went from part-time to full time and then I quit. Yeah. <laughs> Is that <Yes>. awesome? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the first half. Now it gets good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's like the super condensed version. So many, th so much stuff awesome. happened in between there. But you know, it's it was it was a wild ride for sure, and you know, it's still going. That's the beauty of it, isn't it? It is. Where'd you go, Fort Meade? Is Fort Meade? So we ended. Where he ended up? Yes. Yeah. He he got his job at Fort Meade. I was at home for a while, and then we decided. Okay, so we were trying to get back down to Georgia because of cost of living, and um, yeah. It just by wasn't happening. By the masters, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh man. And I have my family. My family lives in South Carolina now, and uh, and then I've, because I was stationed there for like three and a half years, uh, I had a really good network of people I knew in and out of the military. So I just really wanted to go back to Georgia for cost of living and the network and stuff. But we just could not seem to get out of Maryland. So we decided to go ahead and just uh, accept it and. Uh, we decided to buy a house and that's how I ended up going back to work as a federal contractor doing the exact same thing that I did while I was in the military. Um, mm -hmm. And that was the funny thing is when I was serving, we always said, if I could just do my job, I would get so much done. But I'm always pulled out by the Navy or always pulled out by the Army. Everybody said it. And then I got to live it. I got to live what we said was the dream, which was just doing our job as a federal contractor. Turned out it was super boring. I knew it. I knew you were going to say that too. I was like, okay, all right, so here we go. <laughs> yeah, well, so that's what I would do. And it's like, I don't know if I got, I just, I would accomplish like so much, like just language and just focus on it. I, have, I would hours and hours, right? And I'd watch all the military people leave. And it turned out my favorite part of my job was the part where I got to work with soldiers and develop them and, and help them, you know, progress professionally like i loved working with the language but i love teaching it and helping my soldiers get better you know and if it, or if it was analytical skills like okay we need to learn how to use a new tool or maybe you know they they miss something in the translation and working on those types of things and actually digging in with them that was my favorite part and as a federal contractor like i i didn't even have options for that you know you're just you're just plug and play basically you're not technically pegs, allowed to be in charge of anything yeah, yeah. i'm curious though because I know your business model is based on marketing and and business development and things, and I don't. I, I'm trying to understand how that converts. I mean, I, we we talked about you know you end up doing marketing for the, for the federal government and stuff, but how do you make that change to entrepreneurship transition? Because entrepreneurship is terrifying. 
and and every day I'm scratching my head going, you know. So how do you make that change and and embrace it and thrive? Obviously, you need a good, strong support network. But what could you walk me through that? Yeah, sure. So I think it helped a lot that I was able to start it part time. You know, so like I wasn't sitting at home being like, oh, how am I going to pay for things this month? You know, um, and so I got to make mistakes, charge too little, not know my worth, get ghosted oh, by bad clients, oh, all that stuff. Yeah, like I got to do all of that stuff while I still had my contracting job with the government, right? Doing translation. So that was something I got to do. And then I got to grow and progress and kind of do like a crash course um through like entrepreneurship and even marketing and, and learn what it felt like to get results for clients and to try things I hadn't tried before and then you know to take that and use it as feedback to improve and to iterate on my processes and so that was a big thing is that, that that's the truth like I had no marketing experience but being in the military taught me how to teach myself and learn fast. You know, like you show up to a new duty station and they're like, like in my case, like, oh, you're a sergeant who's on their second duty station. And I mean, that was incredibly low for linguists. Usually they did one tour, like one, you know, enlistment term, and then they got out because they could get paid so much more as, as civilians. So when I showed up, you know, they're like, this is your second duty station and you've got deployment experience. They're like, learn all of these things and be in charge of all the things And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. They're like, learn it. You know, so you just do it. And I was like, well, why can't I use those skills to make it happen for myself to do something that I wanted to do and wanted to learn? So that was part of my military experience that I embraced. Um, the other thing is that being in the military, like, right, like embrace the suck, right? Like, you know that you just have to do these things and just have to experience some things. And, you know, if it's sitting in the rain for hours and hours and hours, if it's sitting in the heat because there's a malfunction on the range and the targets won't all go back down. So it looks like all of you are failing, whatever it is, you just embrace the suck and you own drive it. on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like you just you have to own it. You just have to, to move forward. And so that was a huge part of it is I, I learned things that showed me that I could learn anything that I wanted to. I could learn anything I wanted to if I had the, the time and the energy, right? And if you don't have time, you make time. And if you don't have energy, you go get some coffee or a Mountain Dew or a bang or something. Game was plugged right? brought to you by Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, that's what you do. So you, if you don't have time, you make time. If you don't have energy, you go drink something. Like, yeah, a caffeine patch or something. Like, you make it happen. And so I think that that's something that the veterans definitely bring to the table in terms of that initial journey is as service service members, like we have gone through things that a vast majority of the population has not. So when other people are talking about, oh, this, you know, this sucks. And I can think like, yeah, that does suck. But you know what sucks more? Being on the same base that's about three miles around for 12 months. That sucks more. That was pretty bad. That was pretty bad. You know, like you think your internet is bad, like Afghanistan internet is bad, right? Internet on a ship isn't too great either. Right. See, so you know, it's like like <laughs> when, when people talk about stuff like that, like when you're comparing, like being mortared as you're trying to go get breakfast, that's bad. That's bad. You know, like so. All context and perspective. It is, and so I think <laughs> that by having a, a much lower bar or maybe a higher bar in terms of what truly sucks. 
it allows you to be resilient when sucking yeah. is like right here. And you're like, the worst I've ever been through is like all the way up here. So down here is not that bad. Yeah. And uh, it, absolutely. That puts everything in perspective. And I love the uh, the frame that you just basically made that, that transition from service to entrepreneur. And that's something we don't hear enough about um, and, and how you essentially created your own destiny, which is which is exciting and, and that entire journey. I'm really, really curious about the uh, about the uh, linguistic skills. I was actually thinking about you the other week. I was out in uh, in Monterey, California. Oh. And I, uh, I, I saw a beautiful DLI out there and I know you spent some time there. So you mentioned, Ruthie, that you were essentially assigned uh, Persian Farsi. And, uh, and I'm curious, you know, for many that have not been through a program like a DLI, which is known as the standard um, the, in, in, in learning languages for across the Department of Defense, um, what was that experience like going there, not knowing that the language existed, not knowing anything about what you were going to be getting into, and then walking away with, with as you said, marketable skills, um, but most importantly for you, skills that were able to be put into service um, on behalf of the country. DLI yes. stands for Delenic Defense Language Institute. We're using, we're using acronyms again. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 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 The defense, the defense language Institute DLI. Um, so, so yeah. So first off, when I was at, uh, the MEPS, I know that that's an acronym, but I cannot for the military, what is it? Processing. Processing station. station. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So when I was at that place, that processing station. That horrible um, place that, it, it's just, it's a way station on your way into the world of the military. Don't judge, it, don't, after your first visit, do not run away because it will get better. It will get better, I promise. But go ahead, please keep going. It's, yeah. it's run by the army. It's run by the army. <laughs> so, yeah. So while I was there, um, I took a language aptitude battery. So they, they call it the D-Lab, Defense Language Aptitude Battery. And based on the score that you get, that's how they determine, okay, we can, first of all, that you have the aptitude to learn a language so we can actually move forward with your contract. Um, but then also depending on your score, that's how they determine which difficulty le level of language they can assign you. And so I ended up in the category three, the languages harder than that are in category four. And so Persian Farsi is what we said, cat three is how we, we talked about them. But yeah, so Persian Farsi is in a cat three language. And so that's how I, it got assigned to me. It was based on my aptitude and then the needs of the army. So at the time they determined that they needed Persian Farsi. Uh, so the trick about that though, is that once they decide that they need it, right? It's kind of like this long trickle down effect where my unit didn't get me until two years after I signed until I, I joined two years after. But going through DLI, I had actually already learned Spanish because I was from California and then I took it in high school. So whereas Spanish has a lot of things in common with English, I did have kind of a framework in terms of how my, you know, how I typically learned languages. So that helped a lot. Are you Latin? Um, no, I'm not. Just, just from San Diego, so it's just, and there are lots of people who spoke Spanish at my school, and I get that question a lot, though. And then when I tell 
people not in the military that I, you know, I used to be a translator and that it was Persian. I always get asked if I'm Persian, which I am also not. Um, <laughs> I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm boring, I guess. Uh, my mom is, is white and my dad is black and this is what I look yeah, like. Boring isn't what I would associate you with at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, so the, I mean, the language school. So first of all, it's, it's six hours a day for the most part, five days a week, you know, mm -hmm. with some holidays of you learning language, three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, and you get a break for lunch. And then if you're not good at it, then they give you study hall. Um, it's very intense. It, it's, it's rigorous. Like you go in day in and day out. It's almost like school in a way, like kind of going back up through like elementary school in some ways in the beginning, because you're learning your alphabet, you're learning your numbers, they will make you do math in the language. Um, but then eventually you drastically, like very quickly get up to like college level stuff because of what they're trying to teach you because it's meant to prepare you for translation. You know, now we're, do, we're talking, we're reading and translating articles and audio on political events and historical events and cultural things. And so we went from learning, you know, I see Jane run or whatever to, <laughs> to going to, oh, and today in today's news, you know, President Bush did this, this, and this, and this, you know, and then the Iranian plant IED. <laughs> right. Except it, it was nothing like that. Like we were translating <laughs> stuff like, oh, let's learn about <laughs> nuclear power plants now. And let's learn about space. And you're like, really space and a whole nother language. But that stuff ended up, you know, being really valuable. <laughs> So it was, I mean, it was a really, it's a beautiful place to be. Um, but yeah, it's incredibly rigorous. And I mean, depending on the language, the attrition rates for some of the languages were really bad. I think Korean might've been the worst. At, like, How was Mandarin? Was that Cat 4? Um, yeah, yeah. So Cat 4 languages include Chinese, Japanese, Pashto, Arabic. Um, yeah. Was there four or five? Arabic, Pashto, because Pashto got added. And yeah. then Chinese, Japanese, Korean. So there's five, if you include Pashto. So those are the, the, cat, fa the cat four languages. Um, funny note, it always used to go around that English, if it, if it was categorized there, it would be a cat five. Wow. Hey, I would wanted to ask, now your business, when you describe it, it's a um, radical and authentic um company and i want to know because there's a lot of stuff going on today in culture about businesses and and how do you maintain besides the, the military credibility where you're like yeah you're not going to tell me anything <laughs> and i almost yeah that sense of confidence like yeah okay because you got these people that come out of college very very far left-wing colleges and they're you know raising the torches and pitchforks and all that stuff and when you say radical and authentic you are authentic i mean there's no two ways about it but how do you keep from maintaining the line from being radically radical and being perceived as um, a torchbearer, you know, someone carrying a torch and, and, and a pitchfork and, and just being um, loud and proud and, and, and not authentic? How do you maintain that? Well, so for me, the radical authenticity isn't tied so much to hearing myself. Like if I am going to sit down and have a conversation with you, whether we have the same beliefs or not, that is my goal is to sit down and have a conversation with you. 
So I can show up to a conversation, to an engagement, radically authentic and true to myself without tearing the person I'm talking to down. Wow. Right. Because I can accept even if we walk away, like it is not my goal to convert you. It is not because my goal is to try and view it even from your perspective. So I don't have to be converted, converted to view it from your perspective. Just as anybody who I talk to, they don't have to. I don't feel like they have to walk away thinking like, yep, Ruthie changed my mind one thousand percent. Now, if I can tell you something from my own experience to give you a moment of pause, then that would be great. But again, like that's not my goal. It's about being true to myself. And I can do that without tearing down other people. And I think a lot of people- How is that that radical though? When you think about it, if, if you were to sit down with one of those crazy left wing type of people, right? Um, they would do exactly what you expected them to do. How is that radical? So it's radical in that it is incredibly unusual. It's lost in the business space. Um, so in the business space, because I work B2B, um, the fact that I openly share about my military sexual trauma experiences, that I share about the problems I've had growing up being a mixed woman, in America, the, the problems I've had being a woman in the entrepreneur space, I openly share about those things. And in the B2B space, that's largely unheard of. Largely unheard of because we've in, oh, in, sure. in, yeah. in the business. So B2B is business to business. I realize I just use another acronym, although not a military one. So in the business to business space, I'll allow it. <laughs> we're, we're largely boiled down to, you know, professional and friendly and competent. And that is usually what a brand strives for, not realizing that they're losing their humanity there. You lose all of your authenticity when you strive for professional and friendly and competent. Because when you look to your left, you see all professional, friendly and competent. And when you look to your right, you see professional, friendly and competent. And so the humanity there is lost. Uh, people aren't comfortable fully showing up. Those yeah, there's connection. no connection. Yeah. And so the radical authenticity isn't so much about, uh, you know, being out there and like making people mad or, or whatever it is, but it's about committing to showing up as yourself. And so when you're able to do that, you develop what we call a personal brand, a personal brand that you can then leverage to grow your corporate brand, but you cannot lose the humanity. And so that's how a lot of business people are separated. Like they have their business, right? Their corporate brand, which is really mm-hmm. hard to grow in the face of all these large corporations who have years and years and millions of dollars on you. But then they also have their personal brand. So people can know you as Angel Torres, and then you have your company, but they trust you, which is why they would do business with your company. That that perfectly explains it. That wow, thanks. <laughs> Ruthie, is there um, anybody that you can point to um, across your time in the in the military that you would point to as a role model or somebody that positively impacted both your military career as well as subsequently, uh, perhaps that um, your your personal life and professional life. So I had a squad leader when I was deployed. I met her just as we were leaving the States. She had just gotten to the unit and we were deploying. Unhappy day for her. Um, Her name was Sergeant Brown. 
and I was a specialist. And, and so she was my, my squad leader. And she, I felt like, I mean, it was the first time I had really had a squad leader that wasn't really going to go anywhere either, you know, because up until that point I'd largely been in training. Um, but she was the first leader I had who really showed me what being a leader in an army unit meant. And she was the first person who looked at me and said, okay, so when, when do you want to get promoted? Like, when do you want to go to the board? Like, what's our plan for that? And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about me, me get promoted me. And she was like, yeah, you like, what do you mean? And and she was the person who took me to my soldier of the month boards, my soldier of the quarter boards. I even competed at soldier of the year. Um, but because she looked at me and saw potential and then helped me work on uncovering that potential and honing my skills and my knowledge, she helped me work on my physical fitness. And because of her, that was actually what led me to do bodybuilding competitions later, because that was one of her goals. And, and when we were deployed, we sat right next to each other and she had pictures of different fitness models taped to her desk. And at first I thought she was crazy. But then I kept leaning over like, wow, oh, okay, wow, look at her. And I wanted to be stronger because we were in an infantry unit. And so, you know, largely, you know, very, I mean, the military is a very male dominated space anyway, but being in an infantry unit made it even worse. And so, and then being in an intelligence Or better, unit, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Let me know how you feel getting harassed in the gym, I'm not going, all right? Let I'm not me going know. to infantry. I'm, I'm good. I'll take a word for it. I'm not going there. <laughs> that was the thing, though, is I was in an intelligence unit, but we were at an infantry base. And so the intelligence unit kind of had a complex a, a complex about that. And sure. so they're like, yeah, we all have to be good at PT, just like all the infantry guys. So they stopped making fun of us, right? And so I, I was one of my big things. I was like, okay. So then I started getting fit. And and she just she really changed things by, by just kind of personifying, I think, uh, even, and everybody has faults, but even with those, I knew that she was always moving from a place of what was best for her soldiers. And she was willing, even as an E5 to look at, you know, hire non-commissioned officers and be like, no, like you can ask the soldiers to do that, but I'm not asking them to do that because that doesn't make any sense at all. And, and that was something I carried with me. Like, oh, I can, I can be the shield if I choose to, to help, you know, manage my soldiers, you know, life. If, if, you know, sometimes things come down that don't make sense and you'd be like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Or, Hey guys, let's make this better. And that, that was like really what she instilled in me was the, the need to try and improve things for the soldiers. Even when we're actively embracing the suck, how can we make things better? And how can we look at the potential in people and help them, you know, extract it and pull it out so that way it's actually there, you know, not just for the betterment of the army, but for the betterment of them as individuals too. That's awesome. That's that's inspiring. Uh, and that certainly I'm sure it impacted as you uh, subsequently promoted and uh, obviously now in your in your civilian life it sounds like uh, you you answer that without a moment's hesitation um which is exciting um yeah that that's that that's awesome that's that's cool uh so now you are out in maryland and you've got this phenomenal business you host a uh, podcast as well which is exciting you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah so it's funny i have been talking about the podcast a lot lately when i really just started it because i can talk faster than i can write even though i can write pretty fast uh but i had started my new and website yes right see but it was like it's still it takes time right and you're like i gotta type it out type it out type it out 
Um, and so what I, I started my podcast, the Defiant Business Podcast, that's the whole name, the Defiant Business Podcast. I started it because my plan was just to do like 10 or 15 minute episodes on specific topics, take that content, transcribe it, uh, and then put it on my website so I could build up a whole bunch of blog posts really quickly. And while also having this like audit audio, audio repository as well. So it'd have a podcast and a blog post. Well, then I started recording the videos and then I put the videos on YouTube, but it turned out people started listening, like really listening. And so I was like, okay, this is neat. Um, and then I was, when I was thinking, okay, now that I've got the content on my website, which is great, uh, how else can I use my podcast? And I was like, well, what if I interviewed professionals in industries in which I would like to work or I have worked, right? Um, and so that is how I ended up starting to have guests on my podcast. But I still, like my brand is defy the status quo. And so I was like, okay, how can I do podcasting different with my guests? Because my podcast is built on, you know, 10 to 20 minute episodes. I don't want to change that by having guests. And so what I ended up doing was I would take one hour long-ish interview with a guest and we would purposely, I would purposely conduct the interview so it had four distinct sections. And so I would ask a couple questions and then I, I always hold up my finger. And then we introduce some silence into the audio. And then I start right back up. I'm like, and thanks again for joining us for another episode. And that's how I do. I interview them one time, but we just break it up that way. And so each of my guests actually get four different episodes focused on specific topics that we establish before we start the interview. Hmm. And so that's four different blog posts. But it also helps a lot in terms of, uh, from what I've heard from my audience, retention on the topics because it's so condensed and it's so focused and they know, okay, I, I remember listening to that bit. Let me go back and find it. And they can go back to the specific episodes versus trying to find it in a longer episode. So I've gotten a lot of good feedback and I've heard now it's called like micro podcasting or something like that. Um, but I started it just because I could get out a good 2000 word blog post in about 15 minutes <laughs> with, you know, just writing down like a, a, a little outline and like a book on one page and I could do a 10 or 15 minute episode and that's how the podcast started. But the last like four months or so, uh, we went from, uh, I think in June it was at 800 downloads and now we're about to cross 2,400 downloads here at the start of November. Wow. So people have been loving it these last few months. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So we're beginning to wrap up uh, towards the end of our time together. But Angel, what uh, what else would you like to cover? Any uh, any final questions? Yeah, I have one that we barely touched on, and, and it's the it's the, uh, the the subject that sticks out. Um, I know that when we discussed pre pre previously and looked at your bio and different things, we talked about the military sexual trauma piece, and some some leaders that I've met that have. Um, gone through a, um, a sexual trauma event, um, their strength comes in and their strength comes in owning it and saying, this happened to me. This is not a secret. This is part of my life. And they've, it's given them just unbelievable strength that we just, in the audience, we're just sitting there going, oh my God, this person lived through this. And, and, and when you talked earlier about, you know, the resiliency piece, and I wanted, I'd like to discuss if you could briefly just how or when you were able to own it and, and own that and describe the process and, and, and what it's given you today and how you've been able to inspire other people. 
Because yeah, I'm blown sure. away. I mean, besides me. <laughs> yeah, okay. So just briefly. Um, so I actually had two assaults while I was serving. Um, and it was two different people, two different scenarios. The first one happened while I was at DLI. And I reported it. I did an unrestricted report, just like they told me I was supposed to. Um, I did do it months after it happened because he was stalking me. Um, and I started to feel even more unsafe. And so I filed that unrestricted report. I actually got him to confess in front of a uh, program, a SARC representative, the sexual assault or at the time sexual assault response coordinator. So she was sitting on one side and the criminal investigative division uh, officer was on the other side and he was on the phone and they recorded it on tape and he confessed. And then they were like, yeah, we're going to get you into therapy and medical testing and all of this stuff. And I never heard from SARC ever again. I never heard from the CID ever again until it was time for JAG to do another interview months later because uh, apparently an HVAC unit malfunctioned and destroyed my big piece of evidence. And instead of getting sworn statements from either of the professionals on either side of me, JAG opted to just collect my statement and then decided it was a he said, she said. And so I found out again months after that Whoa. that the conclusion of my case was that he got a letter of reprimand from the Air Force because he was an airman and I was a soldier. So that was also another problem is they didn't really know how to handle it because it was joint service and they had decided to, you know, handle it internally or whatever. And so and then when it happened again, it was the, actually the day I got back from Afghanistan um, in my barracks room. And that second time I did not report it because of how the first time went. I was like, there is sure, no you figured, way. Why bother? Yeah. 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 Like I, like I did what you told me to do every quarter. You say, if you file it unrestricted, we can do everything for you. I did what you said. And like, so I'm not doing it again. You know, like, especially as a sergeant, I'm getting ready to change duty stations. Like, no, y'all aren't keeping me here for that. And so I just buried it and got rid of it. It came back. I owned it. I owned it. Not for myself at the time, but I ended up owning it for my very first female soldier um, when I was at my second duty station. I was a staff sergeant and I finally had a female soldier and she was being harassed by a non-commissioned officer from another service. And... Her battle buddy is the one who told me and I and my initial I was like, OK, have her meet up with me um, before her shift because she was on night shift. I said, I'll stay because I was on days and I'll stay. And she said, OK. But my initial inclination was to tell her that she needed to figure it out because nobody like they weren't going to nobody was going to help her. Right. Like nobody helped me and nobody was going to help her. And that's just the way that it was. Mm -hmm. And that, and I was glad though, that I didn't get to meet with her immediately because I had some time to sit with that because I'm like, what, not what was wrong with me, but what was wrong with what I had experienced that I had internalized that nobody was going to help her. That if it happened to me again, nobody was going to help me. I was responding from the space of a private who did have no one show up for her, not out of malicious intent either and that's what i think is so important in terms of talking about this for leaders is they it's not that they didn't show up for me because of, of bad intent but they were not aware of the power that they could have had over my situation 
as my leaders, they had so much more power than they realized. And so in between that time before my soldiers showed up, I realized that I could own that power. And that power for me, I, I told her when she sat down, I said, hey, I had some time to think about this. And I first, I want to get vulnerable with you and I want to share with you. I've, I've been assaulted twice and I reported it once and it did not, like nothing happened. Like it was horrible. I got dragged through the mud because it was public and, and nothing happened for me. I was like, but what I can tell you is that that will not happen to you. I was like, I will, I will call governors. I will call senators. I will call Congress people. I will go with you to every single appointment that you have regarding this. I will escort you in and out of the building to your car to make sure he doesn't follow you. And I was like, in worst case scenario, because at that point I had kind of cultivated, you might be able to see it come out a little bit, but I kind of cultivated a little, she's not completely on board with the rest of us type of personality because you don't mess with that person. So I was like, and at worst case scenario, I will follow him out to his car and threaten him within an inch of his life. You I was mean like, like this, re-victimized, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I, yeah. I did not, I did not want people to be super comfortable with me. I did not want them to be comfortable with me. I wanted them to think that maybe I would hit them first and ask questions later because you don't mess with I that. I think that now. <laughs> Right. But that's but that's what I told her. I said, I will be with you 100 percent of the way. Nobody is sweeping this under the rug. This will be handled. Even even if I have to go out and, and you know, bother our first sergeants, bother battalion commanders. I was like, there's nobody too high for me to bo to bother. Like, I will be after this for you. I was like, I think you should report it. And I am behind you 100 percent of the way because she didn't want to at first, but she ended up reporting it. And I don't know if it was me owning it and speaking it out into the universe, but the system worked the way it was supposed to. He got removed. He wasn't allowed to come back as a federal contractor, nothing. He was gone and she was back in. And it turned out he had like a history of that behavior, you know, misusing his position in terms of taking advantage of newer uh, enlisted uh, service members. And that was the moment, like I still wasn't openly sharing it, but that was the moment when I realized that I was no longer 19. I wasn't 21 anymore. I wasn't lower enlisted. I, I had owned that. And I knew that for her or anyone else, no matter who it was, I could be that shield, the rock, the, the hard thing that hit other hard things to make sure that things got done. And so it wasn't until I became a civilian, actually, that I started more openly sharing about it. And every time I do, somebody always reaches out to thank me for sharing and to thank me for, for being brave. But the thing was, is it wasn't so much like it was, it was hard to confront all of that pain, but I was bearing shame that was not mine. That was not my shame. And I was carrying it like it was. And so every time I get an opportunity to share about it, it helps me kind of shed that just a bit more. But that really is my message in terms of leaders. Like what it goes way beyond what you can do and affect as a leader goes way beyond what they teach in those quarterly briefings. Because you as the sergeant, the staff sergeant, the, the lieutenant, the colonel, whatever it is, you have so much power just in helping that person not feel alone. If one person has your back, how much more can you get done? How much more can you stand when you don't feel like you're alone? And as the leader, it may mean some off the beaten path type of stuff if you do actually have to write your congressperson or whatever, but... But doing that 
could could keep us you know could help keep somebody help somebody else keep it together to keep you know doing the next right thing and moving forward so that that's really my message to leaders regarding that it's a hard topic it is hard but it is so much harder for the people who are involved no matter what it looks like so that's that's really the message there you have a lot of power and as a leader you, you it would probably benefit you to run through some scenarios whether it's mentally whether it's with some other peer leaders in terms of what it looks like for people when these things don't go the way they're supposed to because it happens all the time it does Thank yeah you. that's that's powerful stuff thank you for sharing um it takes a lot and i i know you mentioned uh sergeant brown earlier on uh, the positive side and you certainly dealt with some challenging leadership and no doubt uh, you you did pay it forward and, uh, and that's affected you. And I know um, you mentioned to me and uh, I'm, you know, I, I always, you know, we say on this, we all serve um, that ultimately uh, this is about the leadership lessons learned from service. I know you mentioned that despite all of those challenges, um, you, you think back at your uh, eight plus years um, in uniform very, very positively. And yeah. I think you mentioned to me that you would do it all over again. Probably still I, the I, end, right? I, I would absolutely do it all over again. And that's the thing though, is even after those things happened, up until I got pregnant with my third child at that kind of wrong, not wrong time, but it was kind of inconvenient. And, and that was what got me out. My plan, I was planning to be a sharp representative for my unit. I wanted to stay in, I wanted to be that NCO or maybe even officer or warrant officer, who knows? I wanted to be that service member who was so old that they were just like, get out, like get out. I wanted to be in for as long as possible because I knew that through my experiences, once I had that initial, like that experience with her, I knew that through my experiences, I had the power and the passion and the energy and the drive to affect real change. I was like, look, if if I get, you know, I wanted to be, you know, a sergeant major of, you know, the intelligence command or, or another command and actually be a part of that and be able to affect real policy and change. And that is what my experiences gave to me. And so as a civilian now, my hope is that I'll be able to connect with maybe even some of the units here locally in Maryland in terms of, you know, adding something different to their sharp training, you know, besides the quarterly slideshow or whatever, you know, something different because I'm willing to stand up and say, hey, you say you don't know anybody that this has happened to. Well, this is the face you get to remember now because it's happened to me. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. Um, Angel, any uh, any final uh, comments, closing questions before we uh, before we say adios? That's that's with the extent of my language skills. Oh. Angel, oh, he, he said oh, adios. He said adios. There we go. Um, <laughs> Ruthie, how can people uh, learn more about your uh, about your work and find your podcast and all that good stuff? So if you go to defythestatusquo.com, you will actually be able to find the podcast right there on my homepage, and you can learn more about my work there. If you look up my name, Ruthie Bowles, you can Google it. Uh, Ruthie Bowles, you should be able to find me and I pretty much dominate my like first through three pages of search results now with my name. So it should be pretty easy to find me even through a Google search. There we go. And now we know how to pronounce your name. Here's Angel. I think he actually wanted to say a proper adios to you. <laughs> Hi, hey, Ruthie. Bye. <laughs>
<laughs> you're just wrapping up angel you fell out over there um i was practicing my language skills myself and i said adios um and uh, ruthie just shared her website defy the status quo.com i urge everybody check it out and check out the podcast and check out the services provided and ruthie as uh, to quote a wise man named angel um, you are anything but um, but boring, and uh, and you have a lot to share. And uh, thank you for uh, for your service, not just in uniform, um, but the lessons that you've learned that you are clearly paying it forward. You are welcome. Thank you so much to you both for your time, and thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Thank you, thank you. And uh, remember, again, you can click subscribe, download, share, uh, make sure you rate and review. It makes it easy for people to find the We All Serve podcast, great lineup in store. Um, but again, thank